tonight, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, because we find ourselves in this wonderful chapter that explains why God flooded the earth. It's all about this, this next few chapters in Genesis are all about God's judgment upon this wicked people that have been living on the planet since Adam for about 1,700 years, and you go, how do you know, Pastor Lee? Well, because I read Genesis chapter 5. And if you look at Genesis chapter 5, you'll see all the generations in there, and you can calculate if you have a mind to it. You'll get about 1,650 some odd years, so I'll say just under 1,700 years from Adam to uh, Noah. And uh, the people are so wicked and so bad that God's going to bring a a devastating flood, a worldwide flood. And this is the section that gives us the reasons for that. And let me just say that the Bible declares from Genesis through Revelation that there are only two kinds of people on the planet, two. There are those that are awaiting their final judgment. They're God-rejectors in every way, shape, and form, and they're awaiting their final judgment. And then there are those that believe God and then are rescued. Those are the only two kinds of people that are on the planet in terms of God. When God looks at the world, he sees the saved and the lost. His desire is that all would be saved. But he's given man volition, free will. He's allowing them to make their own choice. So here in this, remember this culture, this pre-flood culture, remember what they're called? The antediluvians. These are the people that come from Adam and Eve. The, the, they've proliferated the planet. They, are, they own the planet. There's 7 billion of them. Again, how do you know that, Pastor Lee? Well, I'll give you some more statistics later. But very easy, you can come up with that. Again, you've got to be a mathematician, and if you like math, you could figure that out, and you can read uh, those figures again. But there's 7 billion people on the planet, but there are only two kinds of people left, and they're wicked. They're all wicked, except for eight. There's eight people. Where, i get my right fingers up here, eight. I almost put nine up, but there's eight. Noah and Mrs. Noah, we're not given her name in any of the text. We're given... The three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth of Noah, and then their wives. No names mentioned for their wives' names as well. But there's eight people. That's it. And from Genesis through Revelation, all you see is these two kinds of people that God looks at in the world. You see those that, that believe and are rescued. They're rescued. We are rescued. Who rescues us, by the way? It's Jesus Christ, right? We're rescued because we put our trust in him. He becomes our ark, if you would. And we're going to see that again in the text. But both Old and New Testament warn of God's judgment. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, we get a clear picture of what God's going to do in the future. His first judgment on the earth by wiping out the wicked happened with water. The second judgment is going to happen by what? Fire. Isn't that interesting? And it's just as devastating Again, God looks at two people. He rescues those that believe and those that refuse, those that reject, 
are going to be judged by God, and they'll be dealt with in that way. So that's really what you see in the whole, that's kind of cool to see that. Again, if you understand Genesis, you get a clear picture of what the rest of the Bible is all about. That's why I'm going so slowly through this. I hope that you're with me. I hope you, you're enjoying this study. I'm, I'm really enjoying it as I present it to you. So tonight we're going to get the story about one man, Noah, and his family that was rescued by the grace of God. It's Noah, that's a righteous man, according to God in the text that we'll read. Noah's living in a culture that's dominated by sin, but because he obeyed God, he's rescued. And we see that again all through the Bible, right? So you obey the Lord. If you come to Jesus Christ, like the scripture says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's not an exclusive claim of any church. That's Jesus' exclusive claim. And so we believe that, we trust him in that, and because we trust him, we then can be rescued. So far, we've seen in our our study of first things in the book of Genesis, we've seen the world created, we've seen the man created and animal life, and then we saw sin enter the world, and when it entered the world, boy, did it come in quick, and it was devastating. It just affected every human and every human relationship just kind of swept through and devastated all of humanity. And that's what the Bible reveals. One pastor said this. He he said, you could take your Bible and on its front page, the first cover of your Bible says, Holy Bible. But you could actually scratch that out and you could put the words, the history of sin. Isn't that what the Bible is all about? And from the beginning all the way through until the judgment of fire until the end, you have the history of sin. Man's sin starts in Genesis, doesn't end until Revelation. And it's this chapter, chapter 6 of of, uh, Genesis here, that the Bible explains what God's final judgment of the world will be like. We're going to look at the flood by water, the devastating, catastrophic, human-killing, devastating flood, and then we can know in the future what it's going to be like when God destroys the world with fire and that final um, judgment that we read about in Revelation. Now, it's in these verses, verses 9 through 22 in chapter 6, that God's going to wipe out these evil antediluvian people. Again, a preview of the final judgment. Let me show you this in the New Testament. You've seen it before, but I want to show. I'm going to put this verse up here. Notice this verse. This is Matthew 24, a great chapter about the end times. Jesus is speaking, and he says this. Notice, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, when Jesus returns, the days are going to be like the days of Noah, evil men and women evil things going on. And we could, we could list all the things that were going on and you could see their parallel happening today. That's why I believe the Lord's coming soon. But then Jesus goes on, follow with me. For as in the days of before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know it until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So here we have a New Testament, Jesus' words referring back to this chapter, chapter 6, 7, the flood, the global flood, the catastrophic flood that wipes out humankind. All those that were given, what, what was man given that the animals weren't given? The breath of life, remember? And so every human that has been given that breath of life is now being held accountable. They're going to be drowned 
They can't breathe anymore when you're underwater, right? That, that's what's happening here in these verses. So with your Bible open to Genesis chapter 6, let's pray and, and I'll go farther. Father, uh, these truths that we look at and compare these things that we see in the scriptures, I, I believe some people are shocked by them tonight. I believe there's others that are, that are shaking their heads. Yes, we understand. And I pray that you'd give us great understanding as we study your word tonight. Teach us, Lord, uh, from these uh, verses, from Moses' writing, from this inspired text. Teach us, Lord, so that we might apply these truths to wisdom in the days that we live. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Almost everyone's heard of this story, right? Noah and the ark, uh, David and Goliath. I mean, these are the quintessential stories of the Bible and people that don't even go to church, people that don't have anything to do with Scripture, Christians, Jews, atheists, agnostics, they, they'll acknowledge Noah and the ark. There's documentaries on TV that, that, that are all about searching for the ark and the jokes. But there's a bunch of jokes. Let me just throw a few down here for you. Which animal on Noah's ark had the highest level of intelligence? A, a, a giraffe. Now, you don't have to laugh at these jokes, but why did Noah have to discipline the chickens on the ark? I like this one because they were using foul language. And on the ark, Noah got milk from cows. What did he get from the ducks? Quackers, ducks, you know, you need... Okay, so joke after... Everybody knows, that's just my illustration, everybody knows about the ark. But did you know that tomorrow, July 7th, there's going to be an ark that's been built in America commemorating this Bible truth. You've probably seen it. You probably know a little bit about it. I got a short little clip I want to show you. Tomorrow, they're going to open it to the public. Tomorrow's the first public day to go see the ark. So let's go ahead and roll that real quick. The crawling hand. So tomorrow, that's going to open up, and I just wanted to announce uh, tonight to you that Esther and I are going to go and take whoever wants to go with us. Of course, you've got to pay for everything, but we're going to go in September, the second or third, was the second week of September or the third week? I've got a sign-up sheet in the back. If you want to go with us, we're going to go, 
and we're going to go uh, see the ark. It's airfares around four or $500, and then there's hotels, um, double occupancy, 125 a night. We're going to go Monday through Friday. I don't want to miss a Sunday, so we're going to go Monday through, through Friday. And if you want to go, you can go. It's going to probably cost you about 1000 bucks. Um, again, we have to kind of work out tickets, and we're going to do that right away. So if you want to be a part of that, i got a sign-up sheet. Let me know. We're going to go. But here's, here's the cool thing. We're in this study tonight. I don't know how it worked out. How would this work out that we'd be in Genesis on chapter 6, and tomorrow the ark opens up this? This, this is going to be a great thing. I'm, I know I, I've met Ken Ham personally. I've heard him speak several times. Um, and he's been doing, for 20 years, they've been working on this to get money, $100 million, and they're going to build this massive, massive uh, ark, a little bit different than what I'm going to describe in its construction than what you see. This is, they had to use modern construction. The front of it looks like the ark, the back of it's a building because of safety and, you know, all health things. But uh, 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet high, seven stories. Can you imagine? That's happening uh, right now, and tomorrow they're going to open that up. I've been watching on YouTube. You probably have two, or, or Facebook, or wherever. That he's, Ken's doing a great job getting the word out. So here's the question that we're going to answer when we look in this, this text tonight. It's why did God flood the earth? The reasons for the flood is what I've, I've uh, titled this message. But let's begin in verse 5 again. We'll go back and we'll quickly go through these. But God sees total corruption. Verse 5. Look at, look at verse 5 with me. Then the Lord saw the, that wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, the universal condition of the heart of man was in total rebellion to God. It would not capitulate, would not submit to God and everyone, only evil continually. How did that happen? Well, we watched as these societies progressed. Sin came from Adam and Eve, and their firstborn, Cain, killed Abel. Unbelievable. Sin affected them right away. Cain goes on to live, and all his descendants, Cainites, uh, they were a wicked people. Remember his great, 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 great grandson, Lemek. And all that he did, we got the, all that information as we've gone through Genesis. And then there's Seth. Seth comes along. And Seth is righteous. But then they intermarry. They, when they intermarried, that ruined everything. The Sethites were righteous. They were following God. But when they intermarried with, with the Canaanites, they became evil again. So now the whole race is corrupted. That's what has been described for us. If you look at verse 2 there, chapter 6, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So what I believe that's teaching is that you have you had Sethites and Canaanites. They've been described as good and evil in society. They intermarry, and now everybody's corrupt at that point. So when God looks at man, verse 6, he sees rebellion and corruption. And then God determined to bring judgment. Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I'll destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. So God looks at, at creation. And remember, I've told you, 7 billion people at this time. And how do I get that number? Again, 1,700 years. People are living for 900 years. 
They're not dying after 70 years. They're living 900 years. So if you take half of the 900 years, you got a 500-year-old person that's had babies for 500 years. Can you imagine? And if they only had a baby every five years, you still have a lot of children. And they have children. They're living in a perfect environment. There's no rain. Remember, it's all just cloud over the earth. There's no UV rays. Perfect planet. They're living. They were kicked out of the garden, but the planet's perfect. It's producing, producing. And they're eating and they're proliferating uh, on the planet. And so for these 1,700 years, you have about 7 billion people. Think about this. In 19, or 1850, 166 years ago, in 1850, the world population was estimated at 1 billion people. In 1930, estimations moved to 2 billion people. In 1950, there were 3 billion people. These are statistics you can actually go and, and look up. I had to do that today. March 2016, today, I went, Googled it. You can Google it. You'll get 7.4 billion people on the planet. In 166 years, from 1850 to 2016, you have this, you go from 1 billion to 7.4 billion. If you were living 900 years, for 1,700 years, there's no problem with a $7 billion number on this planet at that time. I, I just want to make that case to you. Lots of people on the planet, massive population of these antediluvian people. But here's the main issue. It's sin. All of them are corrupt. And we learned that last time back in verse 3. God gave him 120 years to repent. Noah became the preacher of righteousness. He's telling you, you need to repent. You need to turn from your ways. And everybody says, forget you. And they didn't repent. But God gave him that time. God's grace. He always gives grace. Even when people have hard hearts and they're wicked, God gives grace over and over. He gave him 120 years, verse 3, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. He is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be, from the time God's speaking to, to here, 120 years. So they, they have 120 years to repent. And Noah becomes the preacher of righteousness. He warns them. How do we know that? Here's a verse, 2 Peter 2 says, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the wor world of the ungodly. So he was a preacher of righteousness. The scripture makes that very clear. And Noah was a righteous man. We'll see that tonight in, in this text that we're looking at. Noah told them how they could be forgiven. He preached at them. But here's the truth. These people had the same choice that you have today. God saves the same way now that he did then. And here's how you get saved. Through confession of sin. Through admitting that, I, God, I, I'm not obeying you and I'm wrong. And these people had that ability because Noah was telling them that they were wrong, but they didn't do it. They didn't turn. They didn't repent of their sin. And after 120 years, the only people who listened was Mrs. Noah, Noah, Mrs. Noah, the th her three boys and their three wives. That's it. That's what the scripture says. Verse 8 tells us here that God saves Noah and his family. Notice, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now read that verse again with me in your Bible. But Noah found grace. Do you see that? He found it. He found grace. He, had, he was looking for grace. He was looking for God. He wasn't rejecting God, but he found grace in the eyes 
of the Lord. And this is the first time the word grace appears in the Bible. It means acceptance. It means favor. He found that favor and acceptance. Lord, why? Because he was righteous. Because he was obedient to God. Obedience is the bottom line here, Christians. You need to understand that. Even in your life today, yes, you have Jesus Christ, but you still must be obedient. You are saved. You're going to heaven, but you'll have a, a real stormy and rocky life if you're not obedient to the Lord. It'll be hard. It'll be difficult. And, and life still is difficult with the Lord. Uh, there are trials that come, but there's joy in spite of those difficulties, as Paul tells us in Philippians. God saves Noah and his family because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the truth. He, he admitted his sin. He confessed his sin. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord, or Noah found grace in God's eyes there. And then notice verse 9. We're told three important things about Noah's character, that Noah was just and perfect. The first two things, look at verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. Uh, some of your translations say righteous man. And then perfect in his generations. Compared to all the other people, he was doing really well. And to be just or righteous means to be right in the sight of God. You and I are righteous because we've accepted Christ. If you haven't received Christ, you're unrighteous. If you've received Christ, you're righteous. Yeah, but I did the wrong thing today. I had this bad thought. But you're still seen as righteous by God because you have Christ. That's a, a beautiful thing. Noah didn't have Christ. He was looking forward to what God would do. But like it says in Hebrews, all these Old Testament men and women, they lived by Faith, putting their faith in God, trusting God. And Noah was that kind of man. He trusted God. He put his faith in God. He was righteous in God's sight. So Noah met God's expectation. While the rest of mankind did not, and they were wicked, Noah was justified. And Hebrews 11 tells us that. Look at this verse behind me on the screen. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So the Bible commends him for being a righteous man. He was a preacher of righteousness. He, he obeyed the Lord, prepared the ark for his household and condemned the world. As he said, you know, you have to repent, and they didn't do it, and he condemned the world by building the ark. So Noah was perfect, not only righteous or just, he was perfect, and not perfect like in sinless. That's, don't get that idea. The, the Hebrew word tamim, tamim, it just means upright. Compared to everyone around, he was upright because he was just, he was following the Lord. The idea there is he was obedient to God. So Noah... Although he was a sinner before the flood, and, and we're going to get to chapter 9. Some of you will probably start reading now. He was bad. Bad stuff happens in chapter 9. Noah is a sinner in chapter 9. But at this point in time in his life, he's obedient to the Lord. He, he's just, and he's perfect, or he's, he's upright at this time. He was definitely a sinner both times, just like you and I. Doesn't that sound like you and I? I'm, I'm saved, but I'm still a sinner. That sin nature just wants to dominate at times, doesn't it? So, so Adam, uh, Noah's still going to struggle with that. We'll see that in chapter 9. But here in chapter 6, before the flood, he was just and perfect. And how was he just and perfect? 
because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It was God's grace. That's the only way that you can be just is to know the Lord and, and find grace in him. It wasn't Noah's works which preserved him from judgment. It was the grace of God that he found in the Lord there. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord, verse 8. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And this scripture, you've seen it a million times. I, I think you should memorize this. Put it anywhere to memorize it. But grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that like, like Noah, faith, put his faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Noah, at this time, he was righteous before the Lord. And Moses tells us, Moses writes and records that Noah walked with God. Look at verse 9 there. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. This is kind of Moses' uh, summarization of Noah's life, that he walked with God. The, the idea is that he had a consistent walk with God. He wasn't on and off day by day, but he was righteous and he was doing the best he could to be obedient day by day and listening to the Lord and obeying God. That's what that means. He's walking with God day by day. The consistent walk with the Lord is your best testimony to anyone around you. Your consistent walk with the Lord so important for us to, to have a walk, to follow Jesus Christ and to walk in Christ day by day, moment by moment. Now, now Moses names Noah's sons here in verse 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And interestingly, there's no other mention of their wives' names. They're just not there. So we just call them Mrs. Noah and, and the daughters-in-law there. But this section now, we come to verse 10 through 22, can easily be divided into three parts, and that's what I'm going to do so I can teach it and you can understand it. The reason for the flood is the first section, then we have the rescue, and then the revelation. So we start with the reasons for the flood. That's why I titled this section that. But notice verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with, notice, violence. So... The, the men were corrupt and wicked, and Moses makes this comment about the, the people and what they were doing. They were violent. In verse 12, so God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, the, the reason for the flood then is very, very clear. Corruption, violence, uh, disobedience to God. You could name quite a few there. We're not given the specific details here, but notice that man's relationship to man is summed up with one word, violence. Isn't that interesting? When God sees violence, man against, uh, man, against man, violence, that is a total opposition. That's not what God created. Remember, God created Adam and said, Adam, you're not complete. I'm going to make you a helper. I'm going to make you a, a, a person comparable. Relationship is what God wants to see. Love between his sons and daughters. But when he looks at this pre-Diluvian people, what does he see? Violence. That's what this scripture is telling us. And I believe that all these people knew that God lived because Adam lived for 940 years. Think about that. We read that earlier. I think in chapter 3 or chapter 4, Adam lived for 930. So Adam is going to be telling his grandkids and his great-great-grandkids, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids, and he's telling his, 
all these, his children, he's telling them over and over and over again about God and about that first sin and all. He's reminding, they know. I, I believe these people knew, uh, but they were indifferent. Man is acting independent of God because they don't want to be culpable. They don't want to be accountable. They want to do their own thing their own way. I can do my own thing. I can live shaking their fist at God. We see that today. We'll see that. You read the book of Revelation. That's what the people are doing, even though all these catastrophic events are happening. The world is being judged, but they're shaking their fist at God. They're Christ rejectors. And, and so God looks at them, and they're violent. God tells Noah that he's going to judge the world. And I love this fact. And we see from this point on, we'll see these conversations. Noah says nothing here, but God speaks to him personally. That's the record here. So God is telling Noah what to do. God is telling him what he's going to do. Noah is just listening. He has nothing to say here. Look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with all the earth. I love the, whenever you see them in the Bible, whether it's in the Old or New Testament, there's them and they, and then there's us. There's a difference between those that are in fellowship with God as us and them. And here we see them, those are the ones that are being judged, and God is going to destroy them because of the violence that they're perpetrating on one another. So God says to Noah, there's no more options. And he's made his determination here. And again, the righteous Sethites could have lived separate lives, but they intermarried with the Canaanites and become corrupt and ruined, like it says in verse 2. And then in verse 5, again, I'm going back, but just to make the point here, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of their thought was only evil. And there's all this violence. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God, filled with violence. Verse 12, the flesh was corrupted in their way on the earth. So Noah, he doesn't say anything here. His only response is to do exactly what God tells him to do. Again, this is what makes him righteous. This is what makes him just or perfect, like it says here in the scripture. And these are the reasons that God judges the world. God is just. God is gracious. But man is so bad and so corrupt, so God now pours out judgment. There's an end to the grace of God. This, isn't that interesting? There's an end to it. He's gracious, gracious, gracious. Jesus came as a baby. Jesus came to, sh to uh, show the Father to us. God in flesh, the incarnate God in Jesus Christ. Humble and meek and mild and healing and helping and feeding. When Jesus comes back the second time, he comes as a king, as a ruler, as a judge. He didn't come back as a little baby. There's the end of grace the end of grace. And this is really interesting too. Grace ends when the church is raptured, when the church is caught up in the seven years of tribulation on the planet. Grace ends. The church is gone. Now there are still some that won't turn to, uh, turn to the devil at that time. They won't take the mark of the beast. But, but most of them, are their destiny has been sealed. There, there will be some that they're martyrs. There will be some. They're Jewish primarily, by the way, if you read the context of Revelation. But there's an end to God's grace and because these people were so violent now. So the reason for the flood, 
Number two, the rescue from the flood, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with a lower sec second and third decks. Now, I want to look closely at the construction of the ark here, and I, I want you to notice some things about it. God is, is giving instructions to Noah about the ark, but he hasn't told him why. There's no, no comment here that, okay, no, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to um, cause it to rain and flood the planet. So you've got to build a boat. He doesn't tell him any of that stuff. He just says, says to his obedient servant, to this just and righteous Noah, that's been proclaiming for 120 years th that God is going to judge. He's been building for 120 years this ark in front of the people. And now God just tells him, I want you to make an ark. And he doesn't really know why. No mention of water or rain. So basically an ark, this is really interesting, an ark, you saw the images, you have a picture in your mind, some of you on your nursery, you have a little ark emblem on the wall or a little, maybe a keychain with an ark, you know, and the rainbow, I've seen, there's so many different depictions, but the ark itself is not a boat, it's not a ship, it's not a boat, it's an ark, an ark is, is just really a box, think about it, there's no ship builders in, for these ancient people. They're on dry land. He just builds a boat. Did he, could he make a template, you know, that had round and curved edges and a bow and a stern and, you know, a place to put the motor and a rudder? No, there's none of that mentioned. He just makes a box. I think that's really important for you to understand here. God says, make yourself an ark or build this box here. And the word ark is teba. All it means is a floating vessel. That's all it means. The Hebrew word ship you find in other scriptures, it's on iyah in the Hebrew. It means a boat or a ship. But what God is asking you know, to do is to build a box here. So God doesn't use these terms. He says, he doesn't say build a ship, build a vessel, build this ark. It's a vessel. It's not a ship. It's not for sailing. It's not to be propelled through the water. Just a big box, a big rectangular wooden box. And, and again, when you look at the scriptures, you'll see that that's really what he's going to build. He's going to build it on dry land, and it's, doesn't, it's not in a smooth little template with all these lines. It's just a, a square wooden, or pardon me, a, a rectangular wooden box. So God's designed it, and the ark, again, wasn't designed to move through the waves. It wasn't designed to go anywhere. It, it, all it's going to do is preserve people. It's going to protect the people and the animal life on it. Henry Morris says it didn't need a bow to cut through waves. It didn't need oars or rudder. It didn't need a captain or deckhands. It's just a big rectangular, and I've written down here, rescue box. That's all it is. It's a rescue box. Now, here's an interesting note about the ark. There's only one other place that ark is mentioned in the Bible, here and in Exodus 2. And if you know what happened in Exodus 2, there was a lady named Jochebed, and she made an ark for her son. You remember the story? 
she makes this little ark and she puts little baby Moses in the ark. The Egyptians were killing all the, the male Jews. They were actually dominating society, all these males, and they're going to revolt against the Egyptians. So the, the Pharaoh says, kill them all, kill all the male babies. So they start killing, finding the Jew male babies and killing them. And Jochebed didn't want her son to die, so she hid him. She couldn't hide him anymore, so she made an ark, just a little floating basket. She wove it together with reeds, made a little box and put him in it, put pitch all over it, put him in it and just let it float. It didn't have direction. There wasn't a sail to direct it. She put it in the water and it just floated down the Nile. And, and it just so happened that God had it float right up to the Pharaoh's daughter while she was out bathing there in the Nile. And she found this little baby in the ark. And you know the story. But it's mentioned in Exodus 2. I have that scripture, verse 3. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark. There's the word of bulrushes for him, dubbed it with asphalt pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So again, the story of, of Moses here, the ark of protection, the story of, of uh, Noah, he's got the rescue box for the people and the animals. That's God's whole the, the, both of these arcs rescued people. That was the, the point, rescued the occupants from drowning. So Noah's ark was a massive structure. In verse 15, again, we get the dimensions, 300 cubits, 50 cubits, 30 cubits. A cubit is, is roughly 18 inches long, you know, from your fingers down here. You know, there's different ways of measuring that, but that's essentially what's been believed, 18 inches long. So that means the ark was some 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's a big box. Think about that. We have Costco. That's a big box store. This is a big wooden rectangle with a flat bottom, flat sides, flat ends. That's what the Bible says. There, there's no mention of, of motion. Through the, it was just to protect these people, to preserve these people. So Henry Morris, who is an engineer and a scientist, says this. He says that the ark would have been so stable because of its length to width ratio. It would have been so stable in the water based on wavelengths. Scientists study all that stuff. The length of a, of, a, of a large wave on the ocean. So long and so stable, even though it was sideways to the wave, the wave wouldn't tip it over. Very interesting. God designed this rescue box the way he wanted it to be stable. It has three floors, verse 16, one door and a window. Thank God for the window. I mean, good grief. All those animals in there, can you imagine being in there? Open the window. Somebody open the window. There's, there's a window there. And the window was really there. Remember at the end of the rain, the windows opened. And we'll get to that in the, the bird, and we'll, we'll get all that. That's coming. Somebody calculated the capacity of the ark. And it's three different levels. And says that it would be equal to 522 modern railroad boxcars. You could put the contents of 522, those boxcars that go up to Cajon Pass, 522 of those boxcars, the contents of those, inside this ark. That's how big the ark is. And there's always the question of the skeptic that says, how do well, you, I don't believe in Noah and the ark. How do they get all those animals on there? Well, if you really want to know, you take the average size animal, a sheep, for instance, 
And you can put some 240 sheep in one boxcar times 522 boxcars. That's 125,000 animals. And not every animal is the size of a sheep. Some animals were bigger. But here's the thought on that. It doesn't say that they took mature adult-sized animals, does it? So they could have taken little baby rhinos or little baby elephants. They didn't have the big full-size massive elephant. They could have had the little baby elephant on there. So think about it. It's very feasible to get all of the animals and all these species on the ark. The main point is God is commanding Noah. Noah has no idea. And he says, Noah, I want you to make this box. And it's going to be this big. And Noah's probably like, whoa. He has no idea. He's just, okay, I'll, I'll start building. And so we have the reasons for the flood, the rescue. And then my third point here tonight Verse 17, the revelation concerning the flood. This is interesting. And behold, verse 17, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is, here it is, the breath of life. God put the breath of life in man and now he's going to destroy. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons, wives with you. So this first revelation to Noah now is water. Water, the flood waters on the earth, verse 17. And he's going to, God says, I'm going to bring this. I've chosen to do it this way. I'm going to bring flood waters. Interesting, that word flood water in the Hebrew, mabulu, It means moving waters or uh, uh, full of water or moving or full waters. And it's only mentioned in relation to the flood on the earth. And then secondly, God tells Noah why. Again, the end of verse 17, to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which there is this breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, can you imagine you're Noah? You're preaching to people. They're not listening to you. And now God says, I want you to build an ark, and I'm going to destroy every living thing on the planet. Everything that's outside the ark is going to die. Can you imagine how Noah felt when he heard that information, that judgment from God? And then I wonder if if Noah really understood his role in the whole thing. I, I don't think he really understood it all because He is going to be part of this plan of salvation that God has worked out. Salvation for just him and his wife and his children and their wives. He's part of that whole thing. The world's never seen devastation like they're going to see in this this once in, in history occurrence. Because remember, there was a rainbow afterwards. God said, I'll never destroy this way again. He destroyed once with water. He's going to destroy the next time with fire. And so, the third thing that we see here in verse 18 is a covenant. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark. And God's covenant with with Noah is precious. It's it's a covenant of salvation. It's it's because you're righteous, because you're obedient. I'm going to covenant with you, and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to rescue you. That's what he's saying there. Your whole family is going to be saved. And so God is also going to use Noah to save this remnant, not only of humanity and his family, but of every mammal, every air-breathing animal and bird 
so that the world could have a restart, so the world could be repopulated again after the flood. And that's why God tells Noah in verse 19, and of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now, as for the problem of, does Noah now have to set traps all over? <laughs> I mean, these animals are obviously wild. They're hunted. Some are grown. Remember, we, we learned about that. Some of Noah's family had this gift in, in, in animal husbandry, and they were growing animals, skinning them, and selling meat and all that stuff. So, so there's still, there's a fear in these animals now. They're not going to just walk into the, to the ark. But verse 20 tells us that God is the one that caused the animals to come. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you. And all you're going to do is put them in the ark, close the door, and keep them alive. I'm going to bring them to you. Don't worry about this. Isn't that wonderful? Again, this is God's plan. This is God's design. It's a subtle miracle, but it's a miracle no less. God has control over the animal kingdom. Sends them all two by two to the, to the ark. So God commands Noah to take the, all the food he can, verse 21, and you shall take for yourselves all the food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for the animals, for them. So he's got to gain enough storehouses for all his animals. Again, one of the things that Ken Ham has done on the Ark Encounter back in Kentucky is to show you how this would all work. So you walk through the ark and you're going to see these little cages and see these, there's 160 display rooms he's got. He's got the three different levels. And you're going to see how the boat's built. It's the largest timber frame structure in the world, built by these Amish con uh, construction guys back there in, in Kentucky. Very interesting the way it's built. I've been watching it. Maybe you've watched it too on Facebook. I've been watching, watching, watching all those. It's been fun to watch it being built. But, but again, this is... All been commanded by God. God's in full control here. And now he says, bring enough food to sustain for time on the ark. Now, the fourth revelation concerning the flood in these verses is really the best. And I, I, I want to focus on this. And it's Noah's obedience. Look at verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did it. He did it. He just does it all. He does what God told him to do. When given this job, I mean, think about this. You've got to build a structure. No one, I mean, there's no structure like it. I want you to build an ark. It's a square, big, huge rectangle. I keep saying square, pardon me. This big rectangular wooden box that he's just building. He's, he, it's, a, it's a mammoth job for him, I'm sure. But Noah did it. There's no mention of Noah saying, well, God, do you really want to do that? Or I don't know if I could really make this box. And there's no whining. There's no complaining. There's no rebellion. He simply obeyed God. Whatever God told him, and God was speaking. Remember, Noah doesn't say a word in this text. Whatever God tells him, Noah obeys. He believed God. And as God spoke to him personally, that's another interesting thing. He's, God is speaking personally to Noah. He has this, and he's walking. Noah's walking with God. 
He's in harmony with God. It's a beautiful story. And Noah does exactly what God tells him to do. Now, again, think about it. God commands him to do this incredible task. Can you imagine Noah going home to his Mrs. Noah saying, uh, God's told me to build this enormous box in the, in the backyard. Uh, so I'm going to start getting supplies. I'm going to hire some guys, and we're going we're gonna to start building. And are you sure, honey? I mean, have you heard of people that, that build uh, canoes? I've heard of people building canoes in the garage, but, but a box that's this big, I mean, it's acres. It's a football field and a half in length, and half as wide as a football field, and seven stories high. I mean, this is huge. And he takes on this thing. He doesn't argue with the Lord. He just does what the Lord commands him to do. It took him 120 years to do it. And there's no mention of whining or arguing with God. He just did it. But Lord, it's hard. But Lord, it costs a lot of money. But Lord, it's, I mean, think about you and your, anything, any need that you might have. If God's in it, he'll provide. That is my greatest hope through this whole stinking lawsuit that we're involved in. Uh, God has a plan for it. And I'm looking for that. There's going to be a rainbow. We'll be done with it one of these days. I'm looking for that rainbow. I got really good news today from, from the lawyer. Um, things are progressing. So that's all I can say. But keep praying, keep praying, keep praying for this lawsuit thing. But one of the main things that we learned from Noah and the ark is that here, here, God is long-suffering. He has suffered with the evil Canaanites. He suffered through the corruption of Seth, the Sethites and the Canaanites intermarrying and corrupting. He's still got grace to dispense, and Noah is the only one that receives it, really. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then God gives another 120 years for people to repent. He's giving them other and more opportunities. God is so long-suffering. God is not willing that any should perish, the New Testament tells us. God offers salvation to all. And Jesus said it in John 10. Notice this verse. Jesus said, I'm the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. The ark is really a type of Christ. It's a type, meaning Jesus is the door Noah and the ark was the door. It was the opportunity for salvation. Jesus now is your opportunity, my opportunity for salvation. Jesus is the rescue box, in a sense, like the ark, available to all. Anyone can come in. Jesus is the means of transportation from this life that we're in now to heaven. It's in Christ. We have all our hope in the Lord. The ark brought Noah from an old world that was corrupt, filled with violence, to a new world. Jesus brings an old, dead sinner to a new life in Christ. There's really a lot of interesting similes you can make there, but the ark, I believe, is a type of Christ. And just like Noah... We have to believe and put our faith in God. We have to obey God. We have to enter into what God's made available to us. Today, the door is open, but God will shut the door. This is 
probably the, the biggest, most emotional part for a pastor. When I proclaim the gospel to people and I don't know if they're saved, and I believe that, that everyone can be saved and everyone has to hear the gospel. We, we preach it in our churches. We preach it in our workplaces. We should. We, we preach it through missions all over the world because how will they know unless they've heard? And so we preach that message that Jesus is the door, that Jesus is the way to God, that Jesus is the only way for salvation. But that door that of opportunity one day will be closed could be closed for somebody here tonight when you drive out of the parking lot and get hit and killed in a car. And God forbid that would happen. But you don't know if you're going to live tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to live next week or next month. You've got to take every opportunity. If you're a sinner, if you're unregenerate, if you've never come to Christ, this is your opportunity. The door is wide open and you need to receive Christ. And I want to give that opportunity before we go into our communion time. I want to give that opportunity to put your faith in Christ tonight. So let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this truth that we're studying about Noah and the flood, about man's violence and corruption and, and how you were so long-suffering. I'm thankful that we know that Jesus is the door, that he's the one that we must come through to find forgiveness and salvation and a hope of heaven. And tonight, I don't know who's here that doesn't know Christ. I, I don't know, Lord, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would just stir their heart. And if there's anyone here tonight, that's never given their heart to Jesus Christ, that this would be the night that you choose Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the wonderful illustration of salvation we see in Noah and the ark. But Lord, we know you've given us uh, the word, and, and we know from the New Testament and the word that we've given and the example, Lord Jesus, that you lived and died and rose again from that example. We know we can have eternal life in Christ if we'll put our faith in you. And so I pray, Lord, tonight that everyone in this room has had that opportunity that the door is opened and they don't know when it's going to be closed. Lord, may tonight be their moment to receive you, whether it be on the radio or the internet or here in this room. I just pray, God, that you would do your work. So as Christians pray and as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, would you raise your hand if you don't know Jesus, if you've never put your faith in Christ and say, Pastor Lee, pray for me. Is there anyone here tonight that would just say, Pastor Lee, pray for me? I want Jesus Christ. This is your opportunity. The door is now opened. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let this opportunity slip away. You must believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ and, and get on the ark. Father, I thank you for the many here that are saved. I, I just really believe that, that most in this room are. And again, you know, and you're the only judge of the heart of man. But I thank you for salvation. I thank you that that door was open for me and for each person in this room and that we got in 
that rescue box, that we receive Jesus Christ, that we're going to be transported from this world to the next through the blood of Jesus. I'm so grateful for this example. I'm grateful for the story. I'm grateful for its truth. Thank you for the Bible, God, for all that you teach us and all that you show us. Oh, God, you're so good to us. So tonight, Lord, I... I ask that as we go into this time of communion that you would just meet us here as the lights are dimmed and the worship begins. Lord, we want to worship you before we receive communion. Again, as we just remain in an attitude of prayer, let me just say that communion is just a reminder. It's a reminder that Jesus went to the cross shed his blood willingly to pay the price for our sin, for my sin. Jesus hung on the cross in my place. He died for me. He died for you. His body was broken and the bread is a symbol of his broken body. And so we take those elements and and we thank God for them. Tonight I'm going to ask that as we pass the the bread to you that you just hold your portion.